Welcome to Take Control of Your Career, where we discuss strategies to get you in the driver's seat of your career. Here's your host, Lauren Herring. Hello, hello. This is Lauren Herring, and we are live with Take Control of Your Career. If you are looking to level up in your career, then you are in the right place. Today, we are joined by Sally Helgeson, identified by Forbes as the world's premier women's leadership expert. She is an executive coach and author of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits, Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job, which she co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith. Sally, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, wonderful to be here with you, Lauren. Great. Well, this is such a great book for women getting to that next level in their careers. Tell us about the premise behind How Women Rise. Well, the premise was really influenced by Marshall's previous big international bestseller, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, in which he identified the habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful people. And he had this fundamental insight that the very habits that can serve you best early in your career or the middle point in your career can be the ones that are most likely to hold you back as you seek to move higher, move into leadership positions, but you remain loyal to them. So this really helped me understand why so many, why a lot of the women I work with remain stuck, women all over the world, and it seemed to be over and over some of the same issues. But Marshall's book was really drawn a lot from his own coaching base, which is very male. So I felt that a lot of the habits in there were weren't necessarily habits that were problematic for women, whereas a lot of the ones for women had gotten left out. So I suggested we collaborate and How Women Rise is the result. That is such a great story and so interesting that the broader base that Marshall had previously experienced was not as representative for women just because of the fact that we all know that such a small percentage of women are at that top level compared to men. So it's natural how that happened, but really fantastic that you guys then created a guide specifically for women. Yes, exactly. So I was taking that premise and then adapting it for women, but getting rid of some of the behaviors like learn to apologize, which isn't a problem. You need to go there. Yes, we know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Add that to the stop doing list. Okay. So as we really start to frame the concept of these 12 habits, use a term in the book that our beliefs shape our resistance. And I believe this is so true where our beliefs inform our thoughts and then later direct our actions. So it's important to address our beliefs first. How does this show up specifically for women? Well, here's an example. One of the habits in the book is reluctance to claim your achievements. And then building on that, so what you do is you expect others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions or hope that they will. But that reluctance to claim your achievements is often the product of a system of beliefs such as it's important that everyone feel comfortable around me at every moment. It's important that people not perceive me as too assertive or too willing to speak up or being all about me and not talking about what other people do. It's important for me to not be perceived of as arrogant under any circumstances. In other words, it's important that everybody like me by my fulfilling what they're comfortable with. And when you get focused on that, when you have that belief, 
then that's going to inform your behavior. And you're going to have a very hard time asking questions such as what would really serve me best in this moment with this individual? What will help me move forward? Because you're tied up trying to trying to please other people. I need to be perfect in everything I do. I need to be precise and correct. or I will be judged. Those are the kinds of things. The you know, I need to focus my efforts on doing this job as well as I possibly can. And then my promotion will take care of itself. Those are the ways beliefs shape behaviors that hold us back. Great. And those beliefs a lot of times start at the earliest ages as well with decisions that we make as children or experiences that then say, okay, well, I'm never doing it that way. I'm going to be perfect from now on. So just recognizing that those are that we all have these things is so important, but then also recognizing how is this also holding me back? And then you give us some of the formulas for what that is doing to our careers and how we can change it. Yeah, exactly. And and it's important not to spend too much time analyzing it. Did this come from when I was a child? Was this in school, etc.? You know, and and we don't really know. I mean, the perfection trap, which is one of the most popular, but not surprisingly, habits or behaviors we discuss in the book, that's really reinforced by organizations. It's, you know, you, we may learn it as a child or in school, we may get that you know, we may develop the belief that we're either perfect or failing, but organizations tend to reward and promote women based on their being precise and correct. So they send the message, the way that you will succeed is to be precise and correct in everything you do. And the more you can be that, the more you'll succeed, which of course is not true. Great point. Okay, so let's dig into the meat of the book now. So you've shared a couple of examples there, but walk us through one or two of the most common habits that you see women falling prey to. Yes. Well, I mentioned earlier this expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions. And that's a very, very common one. In fact, you know, I usually give clients when I do a one hour or 90 minute program for clients, we say choose three or four habits we'd like to focus on. I've almost never not had that on the list. So whether it's a perception of the participants or the perception of the conference planners, the event planners, they see this as an issue for women. And in expecting others to spontaneously notice and value, you you can ask yourself, you know, do I think other people should notice if I do a good job? Am I expecting that? Am I waiting for that? And here, and it's also helpful to think, you know, here's what I'd really like to be known for in this job, and then find a way to articulate that. And it doesn't have to be all about you. I find using a language of contribution really helpful. So this is what I'd like to contribute to this team. This is what I would most like to contribute to this job, rather than I'm just going to show up, I'm going to do a great job, I'm going to hope people notice. And you want to talk about it. You know, I've got a wonderful example in the book of a woman I worked with, a law firm, and she had come in with a cohort of men. They made partners. She didn't. She was looking for another job because she thought, okay, I'm not going anywhere here. And she went in to tell her practice head that she was considering this job. And he said, um, you know, what can we do to keep you? What if we made you partner? And she said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what I had in mind. And he said, well, we had no idea you wanted to be partner. So she had expected that he would notice she was working 90 hours a week. 
and that that might indicate that she wanted to be partner. Whereas what she learned from him was, in fact, her male co-associates were talking constantly about they wanted to make partner. When were they going to make partner? This was the reason they should make partner, et cetera. So it was sort of assumed she didn't want to. So you want to identify what you want to contribute, and then you want to articulate it in a way that's comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so important. I was just talking to a woman the other day where she specifically said, I'm working at 200%. I'm contributing all of this. And yet I'm seeing these men pass me by. So clearly something's not working here. And there was a recognition, I need to change something. And a big part of that is, you know, how do you communicate what it is that you want? So you're not just heads down doing all the work. Well, there's something else with a woman who does that. And of course, you talk, you know, you and I both talk to women who do that. I'm working 200% and I'm getting passed by. It's often because, and this is another really important habit in the book, women tend to overvalue expertise and believe that if they develop sufficient expertise and exercise sufficient expertise in their work, that that will be the key to positioning them to the next job. So there are two problems with this. One is that it's basically not necessarily true. When you are perfect for the job you have, you prove you're perfect for the job you have. You're not necessarily saying anything about the next job. But the other thing is that that overemphasis in expertise can cause you to underinvest invisibility and connections. Now, I've been doing this work in leadership for now 32 years. And what I've seen is the people who are most successful at finding a way to exercise their fullest leadership potential are people who simultaneously at all times invest in building their expertise, their visibility, and their connections. Walk into a new job. Who do I need to know here to make this successful? Whereas women will often be like, okay, new job, learning curve. I've got to learn how to do this. And then I'll look up and start doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That personal effectiveness is something that women always focus on so much. And yet the corporate visibility and also just building that strategic business acumen is another piece where you need to make sure that you're understanding the bigger market, the scope of the business rather than just your job. Lauren, that's such an important point because it, it, I've watched this for decades. When you put all of your effort into mastering the details of your job, into becoming the expert on it, what you do is you identify yourself as a detail person which is the opposite of being a strategic thinker. And that's really why what got you here won't get you there. Because at a leadership level, they're looking for big picture thinkers. And I have sat in hundreds of meetings where an executive team that's looking at a woman's profile will say, you know, she's really much more of a detailed person than a big picture thinker. And it's because that's what she's been focused on. And that's what she believes Because of the feedback she's gotten, not because she's deluded, but because she's been rewarded for being Mm -hmm. good with the details. She believes that's going to get her where she needs to go. So she has not, you know, articulated what her bigger picture or strategy or vision is. 
Absolutely. So we were just talking about how important that relationship piece is and that corporate visibility. And I talk about that all the time in our work with women. And obviously, it's critical for getting to that next level in the organization, not to mention how important it is in the job search process as well. And one of the things that we know about women is that we're great relationship builders, but some of our male colleagues might be better at leveraging those relationships. And that's a distinction that you actually make in one of the habits. So tell us the difference between building and leveraging relationships. So building relationships, which women are superb at, and for decades, I wondered, why isn't this serving women better until I realized that they weren't leveraging relationships? Building relationships is just expanding your network and deepening your ties with people. And women are very, very good for the most part at doing that and investing in the development of real relationships where women often struggle is in being able to engage or leverage the people in their network to achieve either tactical, that is job-related, or strategic career-related objectives. And when I ask women, you know, are you good at this? No, I'm not good at this. What's holding you back? I don't want to be seen as a user. I want people to know that I really like them for themselves. So it's looking at it in a frame of a kind of either or. Either you're a very transactional user who's not building relationships because you care about people, but because there's something in it for you, or you're this wonderful person who's just with no self-interest at all, no even thought of self-interest, is just building relationships because you genuinely like other people. And both of those are extremes, and you want to be somewhere in the middle. You want to be someone who develops warm, close, and strong relationships because those especially give women resilience. And we need them and we benefit from them and others benefit from them. But at the same time, we don't want to neglect to engage other people in helping us achieve what we want to achieve. We want to make those asks. They can be small They can be larger. They can be, you know, can you introduce me to this group? Or, you know, I'm trying to get to know this kind of client. And do you know anybody or know anybody who would know anybody who could introduce me? Can you set something up? Those kinds of asks, you want to get in the habit of making those because it's really positioning yourself as a player in an organization, as someone who kind of understands how it's done. And don't dismiss it as, oh, well, that's political. I I don't engage in political games. That's not a really helpful attitude. All of life is politics. It is. It just is. (laughs) It's all politics. And if you want to venture beyond your mailbox, you probably have to engage in politics. I'm not talking about ideology. I'm talking about you know, this sort of little transactions that grease the wheels and help us get where we want to go and help other people get where they want to go too. be a resource for others, even as you're engaging others as a resource for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I suggest to women who might not be as comfortable is just practice with little things. They don't even have to be related to work. If you just start with on the personal side or or just pretend like you're advocating for your child at their school, how would you do that compared to what you're willing to ask for yourself? 
That's exactly right. And women are are fantastic leveragers often in causes that have to do with their children or, you know, building a local domestic shelter, the nonprofit. They're, you know, shamelessly willing to go up to the people in their network and engage help or ask for money. But when it comes to themselves, you know, well, I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, all about me. And the secret, of course, is, which we know, is that... You know, when you ask people to help you, the reason primary benefit they get from it is they feel good about themselves. So Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, why would you deprive other people of the chance to feel good about themselves by asking, engaging their help? And it doesn't mean you expect their help. It just means you're willing to ask. And as you do it more often, and you're exactly right, Lauren, do it on small things, really small things. As you get more comfortable with it and it comes more naturally to you, then, you know, then you'll start to realize the benefits. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you tell some great stories in the book also from a personal perspective of how you've grown. And I think people are are always interested in how has the expert herself overcome some of these same kinds of habits? So I'm just curious, how have you applied these same learnings in your own career? Well, I can give you a good example and actually put it in the book because it was a more recent learning. I tend to be a perfectionist and I tend to worry about the details and I keep pad by my bedside. So when I wake up in the morning and I think I didn't call so-and-so back, you know, I write it down and bring it down, put it on my list. So I'm always, you know, trying to manage things and keep it going and make sure I don't screw something up. So Marshall, who I learned from a lot, in, in interactions with him. He and I were working, I live about 100 miles north of New York City. So when we worked on the book together, uh, going over the material, I'd go down to his, uh, he has an apartment in New York. So we were working in his apartment and we never took phone calls when we were working. It was very intense, but he got a special signal from his assistant and he picked up. He said, oh, uh, okay. Oh, I was supposed to call him at two? Dr. Kim. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'll i do it later. I'll get back to him. Thanks for reminding me. Sorry, I missed it. And then he hung up the phone and he looked at me and he just went, oh, well. And we moved on and we continued working. So I'm going like, really? I know Dr. Kim is. <laughs> He's the CEO of the World Bank. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, well. So as I'm going up on the train that evening, I'm thinking, you know, if I had missed a call with the CEO of the World Bank, I would be obsessing about it for months. I would be like, you're clearly not ready for prime time. After all these decades, you make a mistake like this. What's he going to think of you? Will he ever take a call from you again? Et cetera, et cetera. I really messed up. This is terrible. And I was just bemused that this was, you know, Marshall, oh, well. So the next morning, I messed something up. You know, that was not irreparable, but it was a major article I had that was being published online that morning. It wasn't in the print issue yet of a big magazine, big circulation magazine. And I got a text at 7 a.m. that I got in the town. The subject of the profile was born in Wrong. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? So I'm texting him and then he's in France. So I finally reach him in France. Where is this? You know, it says one thing here and says one thing there. You know, I was trying to find the answer online, but I had to confirm it with him. And it was a really I was 
so frazzled. It was such a bad way to start a day. And I was thinking, oh my, I've got so much to do today. Now I'm all, now I'm a mess. And suddenly in the midst of this, I thought of a well. And I thought, am I capable here of repairing this, but also just saying, oh, well, things happen. There were thousands of facts. So I thought I'm going to give it a shot. I made a banner. I put it across my office wall. It said, oh, well. And I tried to think of that every time I was tempted to give myself a hard time You know, yesterday I was doing a program for 350 educators on, you know, on Zoom. And I'd left the phone right on the desk, the landline, and it started ringing and ringing. Someone was leaving a message. I was fumbling to try to turn it off. And the message all been there. You know, we've done it. And I just, I was like, oh, and then I thought, oh, well, oh, well, the phone out. And I returned and I was here. So it's really helped me. Yeah, because you can't do anything about it at that point. So move on. And then at the end of the day, is it that big of a deal? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's there's a fundamental feeling of I can't screw up. I've got to get the details right. What's wrong with me? I do these programs three times a day and I left the landline phone on my desk. We're we're human. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as I was reading the book, I had some flashbacks to various points in my career where I took over as CEO of Impact Group at about 30. So I still had a lot to learn. And I ran into that expert trap. And there were probably two aspects of that. One is where I just wanted to prove everything that I knew and demonstrate to everybody I've got it under control don't worry, your leader is ready to take on this challenge. And then the other piece kind of aligned with that is failing to enlist allies. So I had a lot of people in the organization that were very supportive of me. But because I fell into this expert trap, I wanted to prove how much I knew. And so looking back, I recognized what an opportunity I had missed to go in and just pull more insights and and suggestions from within the organization. So that was a huge aspect for me that, I mean, you mentioned earlier when you know people are trying so hard to start a new job and they want to look like they know what they're doing and they fail to look up and understand the bigger picture around them. So hopefully I've, I've figured that out along the way, but you know, that was a big one that I look back and I feel like I definitely could have done that better. Yeah. And, you know, Lauren, you're so right. Those two usually go together that trying to prove yourself as an expert. And then you don't you sort of don't want anybody to see up close until you've got it down. So you pour all this effort into trying to get it down. And the result is more work, less support and less visibility. It's very challenging way to be in the world. And I sometimes think the biggest lesson of how women rise really distilled down is don't try to do it alone. You know, Mm -hmm. bring other relationships on the path and make them part of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think is a great thing to remember as you're working on these behaviors and trying to move yourself forward is that these behaviors served you positively in your past in some form or another. And so they're oftentimes rooted in strengths. So explain that just a little bit more. 
Oh, definitely. And that's really important. Every single one of these habits is rooted in a strength. If you overvalue expertise, it's because you're very conscientious and you have a deep desire to do a good job. If you put your job before your career, it may be because you're a very loyal person and you don't like the idea of moving on from your boss or your team because you feel a lot of loyalty to them. If you are, excuse me, in the disease to please, it's because you essentially are a wonderful person who enjoys helping others. If you minimize in terms of your speech and communication, it's often because you're genuinely modest person. So every one of these is rooted in something positive. And every one of them, to some degree, probably served you early in your career. But when you move into a leadership position, it gets different. The more senior you are, the more authority and scope you have, the more problematic some of these behaviors become. Some of them become problematic in making it less likely that you'll ever reach those points. And some of them become problematic and they make it harder to be in that position. The example is a perfection trap. You're a perfectionist. One of the things you do as you move up is you need to delegate more and more because you've got other people who are the experts in doing things. But it's very tough to delegate if you are a perfectionist because you're constantly thinking, what if they don't do it perfectly? I have to trust this person to do it perfectly. So you're usually poor at delegation. You may be very blind in terms of the big picture because you are focused on getting all the details right. But most of all, you create tremendous stress. Perfectionists always create stress for themselves, but as they move higher, they create more and more stress for other people. And that's not a good operating environment. So that's why it's really helpful. You want to identify the habits that are getting in your way. But you don't want to give yourself a hard time. Oh, I can't believe I, you know, that sort of thing. You know, these are things that helped you. And if I could take a page from Marie Kondo, which Marsha would hate because she beat him on the bestseller list once. (laughs) So I'll never forget that. But Marie Kondo in that book about, you know, reorganizing your house and throwing stuff out said that, you know, say thank you to an object that is no longer serving you. And I think that's a good practice here. You know, say thank you to your own perfectionism and your own investment in expertise and let it know it's no longer something that you believe will serve you. Yeah. And so when you are ready to make that shift, walk us through the approach that you recommend about how to go about making that change, because habits by definition are hard to change. Habits are very hard to change and some are harder than others. I mean, that's one of the things that's very clear in this book, that deeply ingrained habits that reflect a character and a strong mindset like perfectionism and disease to please, those can be very difficult. There are others that are easier. The communication habits, minimizing and too much, are particularly simple to address. Not easy, not easy, but simple because you can enlist other people to help you to do it. And that's the most effective way to do that. And that's something I recommend for everything is you don't want to try to do it alone. There's research that shows the people who make most successful, long-term, sustainable, positive behavioral change all have one thing in common. They didn't do it alone. 
they worked with a coach, a peer coach, or they brought others in to support them. So that's the best thing you can do. Let's talk about how that would work with one of the communication habits because it's easy. And, you know, you've got nine habits and I can't tell you how many women come up to me. I've got nine, I've got 11, I've got 12. It happens all the time or it did happen when I was out in the world. Now they tell me virtually, but you want to start with one thing. So let's start with something easy. Say it's too much. You've had feedback that when you're in a meeting, for example, a certain meeting and you're called on to present, you give too much information, too much background, too many details, too many words, and that sometimes people find it hard to follow or they get impatient. They just, you know, interrupt and say, can you get to the point, please? That sort of thing. Those are all tips that you may need to, hints that you may need to become more concise. So first, you might want to think, you know, what's the mindset that's preventing me from being concise? You know, what internally is getting in my way? Often in that situation, it's a belief that you owe the other person all the details, that you need to explain your thinking, that you need to justify it, you need to rationalize it. So identifying that is helpful. But then you don't want to stop there because you'll remain locked in your own head. You want to move from awareness to action. So the most helpful action there is to engage somebody, to say, you know, I've decided I'm going to try to work on being more concise in my presentations. You're in this weekly meeting with me where I'm often called on to say a few words or present. Would you be so kind as to just notice how you think I'm doing? If I'm kind of all over the place, if I'm getting more concise, if I seem to go off track, would you just let me know afterwards? It would really be helpful to me. Tell me what you think, you know, be honest, don't be brutal, but be honest. And just that would really be helpful. So I call this informal enlistment And it is a fantastic practice. It's sort of derived from stakeholder-centered coaching, but it's very informal in how you do it. And so you ask that person, and what you're doing by asking them is you're advertising that you're changing, which is very helpful because often people don't notice. We expect them to notice when we've changed, and they don't. We are getting ideas for how we might be better. And we are letting go of some degree of perfectionism and expertise by asking for help. And this person may give us some suggestions. We don't need to comment on them. Oh, well, that wouldn't work for me because, or, oh, that's a great idea. I'll try it Thursday. Neither of those. You know, all you need to do is just say, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. And then decide if you're ready to do it yourself. But having that support in a room, having those fresh eyes, another way you can do that is somebody who's really good. Oh, you know, I'm I'm working on trying to become more concise. And I noticed that you're really good at it when you present. You're very, very to the point. Is there anything you do to prepare that I could learn from? So those are the kinds of questions that kind of open things up and put you in a coaching situation very informally with a colleague. I love that. Those are some great examples and a great approach to driving change in yourself. And, you know, one of the things that I think about is there's a lot that still needs to change systemically in our corporate cultures. And if we're going to really get the diverse leadership pipelines that we're looking for, and still the reality is that we don't have control over all of those factors. So we need to focus on what we can control and identifying which of these behaviors you see in yourself what's holding you back, and then make those steps 
one by one. And eventually you'll start to see the results in your own career. So Sally, I appreciate your involvement here so much today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and a great rest of International Women's Day week. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a week for me, believe me. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lauren. I've enjoyed every minute. Thank you for listening to Take Control of Your Career with Lauren Harry. Be sure to check the show notes for our guest's information. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show so you don't miss an episode. Want to take control of your career now? Visit www.earnyourworthcareers.com. You can get your own career coach or download a free ebook on best practices to ask for a raise.